Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. November 22nd, 1963, a bleary-eyed vice president lifted his heavy paw of his right hand in the main cabin of Air Force One, his left hand placed upon a Bible. Next to him stood the widow of the slain President John F. Kennedy, her pink outfit stained with her husband's blood. Lyndon Baines Johnson was assuming the office of the presidency by taking the oath of office. Johnson made sure the moment when he took the oath about two hours after Kennedy's death, was documented so that the nation would know that a peaceful, orderly constitutional change had taken place. There had been rumors that LBJ had had a heart attack, too. That picture put people at ease. And in that deed and with that picture, Johnson assumed the mantle of the job at a time when the nation might have even questioned his ability and his legitimacy. He had been living in the shadow of John Kennedy, And now that they mourned the beloved president, that act and the picture of that act taking place on the plane also carrying the casket of the 35th president started the orderly transition of power into new hands, just as the founders had planned it 176 years before. Except the founders hadn't planned it at all. Actually, what Johnson was doing with his raised hand and the Bible was a norm, not a constitutional mandate, and it pointed to a flaw in the founding document that needed to be fixed. Our whistle stop today is April 4th, 1841, and President William Henry Harrison, the oldest president at inauguration, is regrettably, and particularly for President Harrison, is regrettably dead. Old Tippecanoe has tipped over. A messenger traveled on that day by boat and horse to deliver the news to Williamsburg, Virginia, where the vice president, John Tyler, was residing. During the 1840 campaign, Tyler was so unknown that wags in the opposite party used to mock the famous campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, by saying, Tippecanoe and Tyler who? Well, now Tyler was the top man. In the 52-year history of the Republic, there had never been a question of succeeding the president, and it was not immediately clear whether the Constitution dictated that Tyler was to assume the duties of the office of the presidency, but not the office itself, or by assuming the duties, a vice president inevitably embraced the office and became the actual president. This mattered because if Tyler were simply acting, his decisions would need the approval of Harrison's cabinet. In order to create legitimacy for himself, Tyler had the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court throw some words together on the parchment and administer an oath to Tyler. That's what Lyndon Johnson was doing so many years later on that morose afternoon in November. Having this vision of himself, Tyler, and I should interrupt here to say that much of the account of this, well, entire whistle stop and the history of the 25th Amendment comes from a a book on that topic by John Fierick. And we'll give you the proper title later in the broadcast. Anyway, having this vision of himself, Tyler, according to Fierick's uh, analysis of the 25th Amendment, convened his first cabinet meeting, and Secretary of State Daniel Webster asked Tyler whether, when in making policy, he would accord himself no greater power in the vote in cabinet affairs. He wouldn't give it any more weight than the other cabinet members. And Tyler said, I can never consent to being dictated to. I, as president, will be responsible for my administration. 
Well, it seems kind of logical that the vice president would become president, but it wasn't at the time. John Quincy Adams, former president of the United States, who was then a member of the House when William Henry Harrison died, wrote in his diary that Tyler's assumption of the title for the president and in the office of the presidency, quote, is a construction in direct violation both of the grammar and context of the Constitution, which confers upon the vice president on the decease of the president, not the office, but the powers and duties of the said office. Well, Tyler won out, or at least the norm swamped Quincy Adams's concerns. And so this became known as the Tyler precedent. This meant something also in the history of the vice presidency, because up until that point, of course, the vice presidency wasn't worth very much at all. Martin Van Buren's vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, owned a a tavern in Kentucky. Van Buren, you'll remember, was the president that William Henry Harrison um, beat out of office. But anyway, his vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, owned a a tavern in Kentucky. And while he was in the number two slot, he basically spent most of a lot of his time, long stretches of time back in Kentucky, slinging the mead at the uh, tavern and not really doing much of anything. And here's what John Adams, father of John Quincy, said about the office of the vice presidency, quote, my country has in its wisdom contrived for the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. I can do neither good nor evil. So this is the way in which the vice president was being uh, considered at this period in history. And so when Tyler took his position and made this kind of grab for the top spot and created this idea of, of taking an oath and assuming the full powers of the presidency and the actual office itself, it meant that now the vice president had to be seen in a new context. He might not have any duties while he's in the basement office, but when he gets called up to the big leagues, not only does the metaphor get changed and mixed, but it meant that he was a person who very quickly could be leading the entire nation. Tyler's power grab showed just how quickly a man in that post could affect public life. What Tyler was doing by taking the oath of the office was filling in some cracks in the Constitution. The rules of succession were imprecise. It did not specify whether the vice president would become president or acting president if the president were to die or resign. And if the rules were fuzzy on replacement, they were almost opaque when it came to presidential disability. That is the topic of our Whistle Stop today, the 25th Amendment, which sought to address these problems and the issues of presidential succession and disability. It is much in the news today, of course. Members of the Trump resistance imagine the 25th Amendment being invoked to remove the president from office. But as we'll see from its both history, the history of its creation, and the way in which it has been used over the years, this is but a fever dream. Much of this account today, as I say, comes from the 25th Amendment, its complete history and applications by John Fierick. Fierick points out, that these issues of succession uh, were, in fact, debated at the Constitutional Convention. But while they were debated, they were not really settled on accurately. Here's what the Constitution says. In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve to the vice president, and the Congress may, by law, provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the president and vice president declaring what officer shall then act as president and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or a president shall be elected. The problem with that passage is that it was inconclusive on the meaning of inability. 
Did that mean a case of the sniffles or temporary illness that left the mind foggy? Or did it mean extended convalescence after the struggle with the Balrog at the pit of despair? And what person or persons should determine whether the liability was in fact happening? And then when it had stopped happening? Also unclear was what would happen if everyone decided that the president was disabled. Did that mean that the vice president was supposed to become the president for the remainder of the regional president's term? Or did it mean that the vice president merely acted as president for the duration of the disability? Oh, and just to remind you, we still don't know who's determining the question of disability in the first place. This issue came up before John Tyler was in need of an oath. Vice presidents had, it took 52 years before a president shuffled off when he was in office, but vice presidents had kicked the bucket before. Turns out that James Madison was a bit of a kiss of death as president. His first vice president died in office. His name was George Clinton. And then when Madison was reelected to a second term, his second vice president, Elbridge Gerry, was also a person who went toes up. To be in Madison's cabinet, they used to say, was to be in your coffin. Actually, nobody said that. I just made that up. Here's the thing uh, I didn't know, that as a result of all these deaths, the vice presidency was unoccupied for a period of more than three years during Madison's term. But the issue of disability and succession arose actually not with the death of the vice presidents, because, of course, that wouldn't lead to a question about succession to the president, but Madison himself became quite sick uh, during his time in office, really sick, so much so that he was incapacitated. At one point, he had to write a letter to, to explain why he couldn't meet With a congressional delegation, James Madison, he is sorry that a continuance of his indisposition will not permit him to see the committee of the Senate today, nor can he at present fix a day when it will be in his power. Concern was that Madison was seized up with bilious fever. Rumors got going that he was basically about to buy the farm. Quote, and here's what a newspaper wrote, quote, we know that his mind has shared the fate of his body. Not a few who recently visited him had left his chamber under a full conviction of the derangement of his mind. But then Madison got better. The constitutional crisis was averted, and this problem was not fixed. Then we had the Tyler precedent. For about 25 years after that, it was used twice, first when Millard Fillmore jumped into office after the death of Zachary Taylor, then Andrew Johnson upon the death of Abraham Lincoln. So, The successions took place to the office swiftly following the Tyler precedent. Nobody worried about this problem in the the Constitution. But then, 1881, July 2nd, there was the first case of presidential uh, incapacitation. And so, President James A. Garfield shot by an assassin. And for the next 80 days, he went in and out between life and death and... um, and, uh, was sometimes fully, fully, fully incapacitated. And this posed a challenge for the vice president, Chester Arthur, which introduces us to the political tension inherent in this question of whether a disabled or infirm president can be replaced by his second. There's a real incentive. (laughs) This is the political problem. There's a real incentive for the vice president to want a president to be declared in whatever condition is necessary to give the guy in the second post a lift up to the top job. But it is that political benefit that he would get and incentive to declare the president unfit that raises suspicion about the vice president. And if a vice president takes the job under suspicion, then what kind of legitimacy does he have in the job anyway? So Chester Arthur had a real particular problem because he was from that faction of the Republican Party that was at odds with Garfield. 
So it really would look like he was trying to shove the boss aside so that he could take his job. Also problematic, perhaps the most problematic thing, is that the assassin, and by the way, we call him an assassin, not attempted assassin, because, spoiler alert, Garfield ultimately dies, but the assassin, Charles G. Guiteau, was motivated by wanting Arthur to be president. As he surrendered to authorities after shooting Garfield, Guiteau said, I am a stalwart of the stalwarts. Chester Arthur is president now. So Arthur couldn't exactly, after Guiteau had pumped a couple of bullets in the back of Garfield, Arthur couldn't exactly say, okay, get a, move aside, James. I'm in, the, I'm in the big chair now. So even though Secretary James G. Blaine, you'll remember him from a whistle stop long ago, and if you haven't heard it, do enjoy it. James Blaine, continental liar from the state of Maine, but he was the Secretary of State at the time. He argued that Arthur should take the office during the two months that Garfield was on his back incapacitated and we should we should return someday and i hope we will to the poking and the prodding of the quote-unquote doctors and experts that probably ended up killing garfield by introducing all kinds of infections just as he was getting better they'd come in with a new cure and make him sicker but arthur didn't challenge the question of who was really running the show during the two months of garfield's slow death because he would have been seen as a usurper following garfield's death arthur was sworn in And the crazy thing about when Arthur became president was that there was then at that time, of course, no vice president, him having been elevated to the presidential job. But there was also no president pro temp of the Senate or Speaker of the House. (laughs) So when when Arthur took the job, there was no but there was like there were three vacancies behind him in case something happened to him. And he recognized this problem. And so before leaving to New York to come to Washington, he wrote a letter to the Senate saying that they should come immediately into special session so that he they so that the Senate could elect a president pro tem. And he mailed it before he got on the road so that if something happened from New York to Washington, pothole or other calamity that might cause him to be dead, then there wouldn't be a constitutional crisis. The Senate being in session with a pro tem, uh, Senator pro tem, or I should say president pro tem, that person could step in if something should befall Arthur on his way to Washington. Can I just have a slight aside here for the whistle stop audience for a moment? James Garfield's assassin, Guiteau, was a, an extraordinary kind of fellow. He trailed the president one day to a railway station in order to carry out his dastardly deed. But watching and seeing, as Garfield was seeing his wife off to a beachside resort, Guiteau was struck. He delayed his plan because Garfield's wife was sick, ill, and in poor health. And he thought, well, it would really upset her if I shot her husband dead, so I'm not going to do it. But he was a, still a man of grit and determination, so he circled back. He was really not that concerned about Garfield's health. And circled back, tried again. And while he was waiting to shoot Garfield, he cooled his heels by hiring a cab or booking a cab that would then take him to jail after he did the deed, which he then did. Chester Arthur, who would come into the job after Garfield, would have his own bout with sickness during his presidency, but it was relatively minor and did not raise this question of succession. Uh, But the exciting story of Grover Cleveland sure did. Cleveland was discovered to have had cancer of the mouth. And um, this was a problem because, well, he had cancer of the mouth. But also was a problem because the country had just gone through the Panic of 1893, which was the worst economic depression before the Great Depression. And I'm not sure where the 1893 depression fits between the, the Great Depression and the Great Recession, which we went through between uh, 07 and 09. Somebody can write in with that analysis. But anyway, 
Cleveland didn't want to rattle the economy by telling them that everybody that he had cancer, which everybody thought was fatal at the time. The reason this mattered is that Cleveland was in the middle of a fight to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, an act of 1890, which bought up a bunch of silver in the hopes of helping farmers who couldn't pay back their debts. The problem is that a lot of people blamed that Silver Purchase Act for creating the conditions of the Panic of 1893, the Economic Depression. The president's position was, um, we're going to get rid of this, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. And that was unpopular, but it was his hope to, to beat back the fears that led to the panic, which was basically that the country was moving off of the gold standard. So he was a combatant in that important economic argument, and there were his allies thought that if anything ever happened to him, it would ruin uh, their ability to, to win that argument. So... Cleveland calls for a special session of Congress to address this issue of the Silver uh, Sherman Silver Purchase Act. And on the very day he does, he boards a yacht in New York City, his friend's yacht. And on this very day, which I believe is June 20th, he undergoes surgery, unknown to the public. Uh, sneaking onto the yacht with him was, was a, unknown, by the way, unknown to the public and virtually every member of government, including the vice president, was the fact that sneaking onto this yacht was a series of uh, surgeons. And you can imagine that there were tremendous risks involved in this, including that um, you can't really operate too easily at sea. And what they did in this operation was in a small room on the ship, uh, the saloon, I believe, they he was propped up on a pillow and then basically like his, his the, the chair or kind of operating table he was on had to be tied to the mast in the center of the room because the whole thing was sloshing around and they operated on him quite considerably basically opened up and took out part of his jaw and a bunch of his teeth and part of his mouth the doctor told the the, uh, captain if you hit a rock hit it good and hard so that we'll all go down to the bottom because they were operating on a president without telling anybody and if they messed up it would create a constitutional crisis, but it didn't. Cleveland got an artificial jaw, and the rest of his administration finished with him convalescing in secret. But he was on this boat from the 20th of June to the 7th of August with nobody kind of coming in to pinch hit for him. The next president to test the hole in the presidential succession issue was our friend Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, uh, as you whistle-stop listeners will remember, fell ill in September of 1919 after giving a speech in Pueblo, Colorado on behalf of the League of Nations. He returned to Washington, had a stroke. The president's doctor told the public the president is a very sick man. Wilson, by all accounts, was incapacitated, and so for the next six months, no one was allowed to see him, and nobody knew the true health of the president. Vice President Thomas Marshall particularly didn't know. Wilson had once referred to Marshall as a small-caliber man. Secretary of State Robert Lansing made a go at trying to declare Wilson disabled as a precursor to putting Marshall in the slot because, you know, you need a president after having just fought the First World War and the country's got some things to be taken care of. But Wilson's private secretary, Joseph Tumulty, who acted as a kind of chief of staff before that official uh, post was existing in a um, presidency, he rebuffed Lansing, who showed him the Constitution Tumulty wrote Lansing and said, I've read the Constitution and do not find myself in need of anything, any tutoring at your hands of the provision you have just read. You may be assured that while Woodrow Wilson is lying in the White House on the broad of his back, I will not be a party to ousting him. And Marshall, like Arthur, when Garfield was president, didn't want to press his case. He didn't want to look like he was trying to steal the job from the president. 
Are you sensing a theme here? Vice presidents, even when they have been abused by the president and don't like the president, and even when the president has got one foot in the grave, the vice presidents are still reluctant to take the top job. Here's what Marshall said. I'm not going to get myself entangled with Mrs. Wilson, who essentially uh, acted as president when her husband was out of the picture. More from Marshall here. No politician ever exposes himself to the hatred of a woman, particularly if she's the wife of the POTUS. So again, you see a second instance here in which a vice president is not going to, even with cause, reach for the top post because he worries that he will look like a usurper and that will bleed the job of any legitimacy because people will think he got it unfairly. Fearig tallies up the damage that was caused by Wilson's decision or by those around Wilson to not have Marshall or anybody else take the job. Here's what Fearig tallies. Here's what he writes. As a result of the lack of presidential leadership by Wilson or by an acting president, U.S. participation in the League of Nations was defeated in the Senate. Numerous governmental vacancies went unfulfilled. 28 bills became law by default of any action by the president. Foreign diplomats were prevented from submitting their credentials to the president. Letters and notes to the White House either went unanswered or were answered by Mrs. Wilson or by the president in illegible handwriting and many other ways. The business of government was brought to a standstill in 1918 in 1920. Next, Eisenhower. Whistle-stop listeners also will be knowledgeable about President Eisenhower's heart issues when Nixon took over, signing everything from ceremonial papers to chairing and presiding over the National Security Council. He never sat in Eisenhower's chair. He never worked in his office. Eisenhower's team operated as more of a committee of decision makers with Nixon working with Chief of Staff Sherman Adams. Nixon didn't push his luck because, well, We'll let Nixon describe it. Here's what he wrote. Aside from the president, I was the only person in government elected by all of the people. They had a right to expect leadership if it were needed rather than a vacuum. But any move on my part, which could be interpreted even incorrectly as an attempt to usurp the powers of the presidency, would disrupt the Eisenhower team, cause dissension in the nation, and disturb the president and his family. Now, This all took care of itself, but the issue of succession and the issue of incapacitation of a president, of course, took on uh, bigger stakes, became a weightier issue because, of course, the realities of the Cold War and the fact that a president might have to act very quickly in response to a nuclear act by the old Russians. Senator Estes Kefauver started a discussion about the 25th Amendment in the wake of Eisenhower's heart attacks. And then Kefauver renewed it in 1963 in August of that year before John Kennedy was killed. Kefauver actually died in August of that year, suffering a heart attack on the Senate floor. There's a lot of death associated with this 25th Amendment, which I guess makes sense since the 25th Amendment is about death and disability, but really not about the Senate. Anyway, I digress. January 6, 1965, Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana and Representative Emanuel Seller of New York introduced a joint resolution in the Senate and the House aimed at clarifying the issue of the rules of presidential succession and the inability of the Constitution to address these things in the wake, of course, of Kennedy's assassination. And the question was not just dealing with the how you name vice presidents. If you elevate a vice president, locking in the definition of, of cleaning up basically and codifying the um, John Tyler precedent, but then also what do you do about naming an ex-vice president? And then also how do you get at this question of um, disability? Also, by the way, this is happening in 1963-45 when Johnson had 
health issues, heart attack. And the next two people in line for the president were John McCormick, 71-year-old Speaker of the House, and Senate pro tem Carl Hayden, who was 86. So the Biden committee does its work. Congress approves the 25th Amendment on July 6, 1965, three years before I would be born to the day. The states completed ratification by February 10th, 1967, and then Johnson certified the amendment on February 23rd, 1967. Here's what the Washington Post wrote about this. The country has been fortunate in its transfers of power in the past, but it can more readily claim good luck than good judgment. Now it is fortified, so far as human foresight can fortify it, by the structure of government against the worst disasters of presidential disability or succession. That Congress saw fit to tackle a constitutional problem of such intricacy and importance without waiting for a crisis to demand a solution is a tribute to its foresight. It dealt carefully and exhaustively with the constitutional issues involved and arrived at solutions that seem wholly consistent with the general tenor of our system of government. And that the states have quite promptly ratified the plan is equally gratifying. An amendment with no special interest group behind it, no claque or lobby for it, no class or section sponsoring it, and with nothing but the good of the country to recommend it has become part of the nation's great character. Thank you. Um, so what, we, what I love about that is Congress saw a problem. They did a bunch of work, weighed the issues, got it done which is what the Washington Post is praising Congress for and seems like something from another planet given the way Congress operates now, where even the basic job of Congress, which is to keep the lights on, only happens when there is a shutdown looming or one that has just happened. With this presidential succession question, it was handled without a crisis. Of course, it was precipitated by Kennedy's death, but then could have been put back on the shelf, Um, uh, but they dealt with it. Okay, so Congress approves the 25th Amendment. Section 1 says the vice president becomes president when the president becomes vacant under three circumstances, death, resignation, and removal from office. The second section of the 25th Amendment gives the president the power to name a new vice president if that office became vacant with the permission of Congress. The amendment's other two sections dealt with the process of the vice president to serve as acting president if the president is unable to perform the duties uh, and how to resolve disputes about the president's ability to discharge those actual duties going all the way back to the challenge that John Tyler faced. The amendment provided a process for the president to withdraw from office voluntarily or temporarily, which was authorized by notifying Congress that he was unable to keep keep doing his job. And then in that case, the vice president would move up. Now, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment stipulates that a president who is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office can be removed from office. The vice president and either a majority of the cabinet members or members, quote, of such other body as Congress may by law provide need to communicate that wish in writing to the Senate and Senate pro tem and so forth. So if the president resists and deems himself capable of fulfilling his duties, the matter then heads to Congress. Two-thirds vote in both the House and Senate within 21 days means the vice president remains the acting president. Lesser vote returns the powers to the president. So that's the ruling of the 25th Amendment. Now, we just before we get uh, to our final piece of analysis here, we should note that this uh, new amendment got its first test drive in October of 1973. President Nixon nominated Congressman Gerald R. Ford of Michigan to fill the vacancy left by Vice President Spiro Agnew after Agnew resigned when it was learned that he had accepted payments for contracts during his time as a Maryland official and then that the payments had continued into his time as vice president. Then the 25th Amendment was used again not very long after, less than a year in fact, Uh, In 1974, Vice President Ford became president after Richard Nixon resigned, and then Ford used the amendment again in nominating Nelson Rockefeller to fill the vice presidential vacancy that had been left by the ascension 
of Vice President Ford. When Ronald Reagan was rushed to the emergency room after being shot in 1981, Secretary of State Alexander Haig declared, quote, constitutionally, I'm in control here in the White House pending the return of the vice president. Bush was returning from Texas, uh, but that Haig was wrong. By the way, <laughs> constitutionally, uh, Bush was still the vice president, no matter where he was. Also, Speaker of the House comes before the Secretary of State. So what Haig later meant was that he meant he was in charge of the situation room, so that if there was something on the grounds of the White House, he was the one. It was going to handle things. The most recent time that the disability provision was invoked was in 2007 when President George W. Bush had a colonoscopy. Vice President Dick Cheney was acting president for a few hours during that period. The final thought here is that the reason this 25th Amendment talk about having President Donald Trump removed from office using the 25th Amendment is cockamamie is that here's the way it's been been worked is that Liberals who'd like to eject the president have pointed to some psychiatrists and psychologists who said that the president is not fit for office and have used this as evidence somehow to use the 25th Amendment to eject him from office. But that evidence would have to convince the vice president, Vice President Mike Pence, to initiate these proceedings and then would have to get, of course, the majority of the cabinet to go along with him. So there's no amount of evidence that is going to cause that to happen. The amount of evidence that you would need for that to happen would actually have to be quite simple, and it would have to be the complete and obvious incapacitation of the president that would be so obvious that it would overleap and overcome all of the previous hurdles that had kept other vice presidents from ever either invoking the 25th Amendment or, because it didn't exist, trying to grab the take the power of the presidency even when, in Garfield's case and in Wilson's case, the president was clearly incapacitated. So this is a political hurdle more than a constitutional one. And so the idea that it would be used without overwhelming and obvious on its face evidence is just not credible given the history of this and the current politics and political moment that we're in. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors of editors-in-chief, I should say, of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks to Dustin Gervais of CBS Radio, who hooked me up at the studio to get all this working. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop.